I literally tossed a coin and if it came down heads, I was going to write to British Aircraft Corporation. If it came down tails, I was going to write to Walter Sidley. And it came down heads for British Aircraft Corporation. I didn't know anybody at British Aircraft Corporation. I knew they were Brooklyn's. So I thumbed through the old, do you remember the old aeroplane directory? It used to be on a big, big, thick tome, aeroplane directory. When, um, I mean, the old aeroplane, not, not the late Richard Riding's one. And... Um, so I thumbed through and discovered that this fellow called Charles Gardner was the PR manager. So I wrote him a letter which really said, you know, I'm actually probably about the best thing since button boots your PR <laughs> department's ever heard of. You know, I'd like to come and join you. No job or advertised. So one summer's afternoon, I was invited down to Brooklands to meet this Charles Gardner at that time he had an office at the end of the, in the DO building and I was in his presence but he never actually looked at me, we'd better be careful about this because Robert of course <laughs> is still alive his son, but no but this, is, this is not really against him Charles was very he was a very senior fellow, he was a special director of BAC actually um, and well thought, I mean, he was he was bought from the BBC by George Edwards when, because Charles Gardner and Richard Dimbleby started the BBC overseas broadcast thing before the war. They were great friends, the, the, the current Dimbleby's father. And he bought this bloke, this, this Charles Gardner, from, from the, um, the, uh, the BBC um, to to sharpen up the then vigorous publicity the end of well in the Viscount era actually and I have to be careful what I say here because Robert's still alive and I'm, I'm still no Robert and so on and so forth I'm not being rude to Charles at all because I had great admiration for him he wasn't the easiest of people always to get on with and I think perhaps even Robert might agree with that he had astonishing logic he didn't suffer fools gladly. He would have actually made him, seriously, a very good high court judge, actually. Anyway, I was ushered into his office, and he's very keen on cricket, madly keen on cricket. He had television in his office, you see. So the office was sort of, supposing it was smaller than this, but it was rather like this. So the windows were there, and the television was there. His desk was there. The office was here, probably with a table slightly smaller than that. The door was there, you see. So I was asked into his office. And he was swinging around, looking at his television, you see, watching the cricket match, the test match, Lords or something, you see. And I came in, and I sat down. Well, I didn't. Sit down. I sat down. See. I said, well, it's a start. At least I'm not left standing here. <laughs> and um, uh, nothing, nothing happened. And, oh, yeah, well, well held, so all this sort of stuff, so and so forth. And in the end, he said, um, he said, well, what are you here for? <laughs> I said, well, I, I got this, this, this letter to uh, an interview for a possibility for a job in your PR department. Oh, he said, go and see Hollowell, go and see Hollowell, go and see Hollowell. And Karen wanted, so I thought, go and see Hollowell. So, he didn't, even, he didn't even look at me, <laughs> literally. He didn't even look at me. He was sort of intelligent. Go, 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 go
and saw his secretary and I said, who or what is Holloway? Oh, she said, that's Clifford Hollowell. He's up at the Pall Mall office, 100, 100 Pall Mall, BAC headquarters. And he's the sort of office manager and admin bloke and advertising chap and so on and so forth. Another chap looked exactly like Mr. Pickwick, became huge friends. So I was, I was dispatched to see um, Clifford Hollowell, Holly, who's always known as Holly, tremendous fellow. And I was supposed, I was supposed to report at two o'clock in the afternoon, 100 pound mile round the corner. And, um, I was shown into an office with, with uh, people. I don't, please don't think I'm being patronizing. I say people perhaps you may not have come across, but great people there. The press officer was a lovely chap called Stan Edwards. Did that ring a bell? Mike, Mike, Mike would know them, I, I think, probably. Stan Edwards, um, a chap, a lovely fellow called Roger White Smith, who was, he was the office manager. And the White was part of the White family who founded the Bristol Aeroplane Company. And uh, Jackie Martin Botts, who was the exhibitions manager, who was subsequently murdered, unfortunately, a few years ago, who was our current son's godmother and uh, a chap called Brian Moon who's the advertising manager and I appeared in this office and they said oh yes you you come you come to see Holly and I said yes and they were all extremely kind to me and Stan Edwards this lovely fellow he said oh he's uh, he's out to lunch right I, I, I got to know over the years because I my first, I was with BAC for twice, see, when I came to the Congress. This, we're now sort of 64 to 68. We'll get on to another page in a minute. And uh, it's quite amusing, really. And they said, well, he's out to lunch, and they apologetic. He said, um, uh, very diplomatic, well, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's with, a, with a client, but um, he may be some time. So anyway, I waited. And literally about... Three minutes to five o'clock, a somewhat inebriated Clifford Hollowell, and he got very, very sort of um, arrogant when he'd had a few drinks. He was a sweetheart, he really was like that. He said, Oh, yes, oh, yes, he said, Terrence, yes, he said, I've heard of you. He said, Oh, he said, um, When can you start? And I said, Well, <laughs> this was a Wednesday, I think. I said, Well, you know. Monday? It's like, right, right, see you on Monday. Uh, chaps grabbed his coat and his umbrella, and off he went. So that was your interview. And that was my interview. <laughs> so I got the job that didn't exist, but I was employed. So I was then based down at Weybridge, although I was on head office staff, because the head office was going to move from Pall Mall, wasn't it, down to Weybridge as a cost-cutting exercise. Of course, that never happened. So I was in... Ah, this is where Air Warpleston International comes in. I was in a, 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 a rather distant little office in Weybridge, waiting for these people to come down and join me, because they never did, you see. And I had to be found something to do. So for, for the first six months of my stay, I was Charles Gardner's PA. And that was great fun, actually, it really was, because... 
although he was nobody's cup of tea, Charles and I, um, uh, we had this sort of love-hate relationship, actually, and we actually got on really quite well. And um, this place, this office I was found, was in a place called Airline Alley. And the reason, Bill, it was called Airline Alley was because we, 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 we actually, although the 111 was not the success it was hoped to be, um, and the, unfortunately, you know, the Lithgow accident didn't help things, the deep store thing. Um, uh, but, uh, more of that anon, perhaps, but he, um, uh, there were a number of people who bought one lives, as you know, particularly in the States, and they would, they would, they would come to Weybridge, and oversee the construction of their aircraft. The first few were made at Weybridge. The, the, the majority were made, of course, down at Hearn, because they, that was the, the old airspeed airfield down at Hearn. But they were based at Weybridge, and they were the engineers that, that, that checked it out, and the inspectors, and all that sort of great people, lovely people from all these Mohawk and, and Bradish and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, and um, because they were our customers, the little old lady used to come along with the trolley, you see, and they'd get a cup of tea and, and, and biscuits twice a day. And I saw this going on. I thought, you yeah, hang on. How do I sort of hold in on this? <laughs> so I got our tech pubs department to make a very elaborate sign. I lived at Walthamston, just outside Guildford, you see, and I had this elaborate sign and it said, representative of Air Walthamston International, stuck it in the office window facing the passageway. And miraculously thereafter, I got a cup of tea and biscuits <laughs> twice a day. <laughs> and it worked like a charm. But, um, and then uh, the, uh, because before, I, I, I missed, I missed the Viking bit. Um, and, um, the, uh, but I got, I got in, I got involved quite a bit, quite extensively actually on the, on the 111 demos. Because what happened was that the, you know, um, you probably remember hunting became part of the British Aircraft Corporation consortium. And, um, as de Havilland's became part of Hawks City and all, all the rest of it. Blackburns became part of Ireland's, and with the, the with the big carve up of the of the two groups, which caused me eventually to 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 leave, mercifully of my own volition. I'd probably been sacked anyway. But and um, hunting produced a thing called, or, or had a design for a thing called the hunting. Again, your archives were chicken. I think it was called the hunting one hundred and seven, and it was. Well, now it would be regarded as an RJ, I suppose. And it was, I think it was about, it was a twin spay. And it was about a 60 or 70 seater. Well, we took this, took over Huntings, basically turned the 107 into the BAC 111-100 series. And... The big mistake I would respectfully suggest was that we fitted the Spay engines and not the J 
J88D because in those days there were no problems about noise and pollution and stuff like that. There should have been, of course, but there wasn't. And even a wet spay, I think even in the Trident was pushing it with, with water methanol, was pushing, pushing it to get much more about 12,500 pounds of thrust. And of course, JT8D started with 14,500 pounds of thrust. So the 111, especially when it got stretched to the 500, which was a jolly good aeroplane, but to my mind, and this will be hotly denied, I'm sure, by some of the aficionados, to my mind, it was always a bit underpowered which was a shame. And the big deal was that, you know, we produced 444 Viscounts. Everybody, every airline's got a Viscount, will of course buy at least 10 of these BAC 111s and so on and so forth. Big mistake. Because Boeing and at that time Douglas could see the advantages of this potential market. And I popped the 737, I popped the original DC-9. And the rest, as they say, is history. And the 737, in some shape or form, is, is, is well, the 737 MAX and so on is still in production, God knows how many thousand. And I think our total build on 111s was, might have been 200, not much more. There was a chap called Jack Jones who ran Channel Airways down at South End with some old... I think they were old BAC 111-100s. And can you imagine, I know the, the 111 was, was, was a, a five abreast aircraft, as I'm sure you know, like, like the DC-9, three and two. And he operated this thing, at, at, oh, and he operated these things six abreast, which is a bit of a squeeze in the 111. And, and it was this sort of deal where you were on, it was the early days of inclusive tours and what would happen in your in the in the seat back, you would open the top catch, and there'd be your pack lunch on your way to Ibiza, and then the aircraft would sit around in the heat for goodness knows how many hours, waiting for the return passengers, and they'd get on board and they'd push the button catch, and there was their meal for the way back. Something about E. coli and bacteria mm. comes to mind. Anyway. These aircraft were requisitioned by BAC, I think, and they found their way into, via a sales guy in the area, a lovely Welshman called Dick Thomas, who lived in Beirut, and those lovely, heady days when Beirut was so nice, I thought. And he sold them to Gulf Aviation Limited, which was the forerunner of Gulf Air, when before um, Harold Wilson decided that Bahrain would no longer be pink on the map, and, it, and Gulf Aviation Limited, you probably know, then was a, a BOAC for BA BOAC Associated Company, and he sold these aircraft, somewhat refurbished and, 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 and so on and so forth, to to them, and I was out there. This would I it would be about sixty four soon after I joined. So I went out there and we, we I was in the aeroplane with Dick Thomas and we were flying up all, mm. I can't remember where, it was Bahrain, perhaps we were going Bahrain, it was in Bahrain, Alain or Ras Al Khaimah or Dubai, somewhere down there, one of these local service routes that they used to do. And um, 
I was up in the in the cockpit guessing to the guys and the, the, the people as, as you do and and that that sort of red light whatever it is came on that indicated that there was somebody in some degree of strife in the laboratory see new experience somehow it was ascertained that said person don't ask me how i can't remember was male so the chief the steward and um uh, and, and me and anybody else sufficiently interested went to the back and got the magic key and opened the door in the the, the loo at the back and to begin with we looked into the laboratory we couldn't see anybody well, as you know, aircraft laboratories aren't usually very large. We couldn't could see anybody. <laughs> and suddenly, my head dropped to the floor, and poking up through a hole in the floor was this very frightened Japanese male head. Now, I should explain that the whole of the 111 fuselage was, was well, on, I was going to say it was pressurised. Of course, they, they are. But the top and the, the, the freight bay underneath was, was, was pressurised as well. Nothing on about that. And this poor man had actually gone through the floor. So we very carefully extracted him. And apart from being sort of rather shaken, was, was none the worse for wear. And on investigation, what had happened, the, the, the floor, and I gather this is not unusual, the floor of the of the loo, because it didn't have to be pressure tight, was made of a, a, an alloy, balsa wood alloy sandwich, which is normal practice, I gather, for, for those sort of structures, which are not load-bearing, apart from weight on them. And what had happened was that um, you will have to sort of put this in your own words, really, as years and years of, um, well, there's no other way of saying it, whittle, spilt whittle, <laughs> had seeped down the edge and been soaked into the balsa wood by capillary action and eaten away at the cladding and just corroded the floor. Anyway, he was suitably recompensed. And, and, and that was that. We had one of the 16 option-holding airlines for Concorde, eight of which were in the States, incidentally. It'd be hard-pushed to find eight transcontinental carriers in the States these days, wouldn't you, really? Uh, was CAAC, the Chinese National Airline. And we were at a, a, an exhibition... Uh, uh, the, the Japan Air Show, this would be, I suppose, about 64, 66. Within that time, within this time frame, anyway, the the the, BA, the first BAC um, time I was there. And um, we had this stand and we had all sorts of Austin salts on it and, and, and rapier missiles and all sorts of BAC things and we probably had, I don't know, in those days, lightning. I, I don't remember, but anyway, because we took over that lot. And um, I was there with a, a chap called Dave Morgan, test pilot, lovely chap. And my boss was a super chap called Air Vice Marshal Ian Lawson, ex-Wellington pilot. 
didn't know anything about his past really until he died probably about 15 years ago and he got a half page in the telegraph not bad anyway 84 missions on Wellington it's incredible it's called Waddy Lawson ex the Howland apprentice from Stag Lane Engine Company <laughs> wave the old flag Ramsden would be proud of me and he was the senior bloke and Dave Morgan was the next bloke in seniority and I was just a little you know sweeper PR sweeper on the stand and we had a big model because it was we had we had a, a, a one of Japan Airlines Concorde model there of course and, and one CAAC covers and we were told we were told by somebody from the British Embassy we were given the the the, the tip off that the Chinese delegation this was in Chairman Mao's days little red book stuff that the Chinese delegation from CAAC were coming around to visit the we were part of the old SBAC exhibit that's what it was you know where you, you get these discounted rates for stands and mm -hmm. things like that and a little tea room and so on and so forth so we thought oh wow this is wizard our agents were Johnny Madison then everybody else's was really in, in Tokyo in those days probably still are and we had this lovely Jap uh, agent fellow with us you know it's always very difficult with the Japanese you never know whether they're eight or eighty do you but he was probably near eighty and he was a charming man and I said look with very great excitement I said look you know the, the Chinese are coming around what a shame nobody can speak Mandarin or Cantonese or whatever it is Mandarin you see just to be polite mm. big mistake I've learned that subsequently <laughs> big mistake to try and speak somebody's language if you don't know what you're doing I think so he said I thought being quite serious he said well the Chinese or the Mandarin whatever it was I thought he said for how you do is Nihai so I practiced Nihai 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 you see anyway sure enough the, the, the party arrived in their very smart grey suits and these sort of grey donut pink caps very nicely cut I thought all their little red books with this second secretary commercial from the British Embassy or something was showing them around and the boss that was of the Chinese group was introduced to Elosley and Lawson very courteous and so on and Dave Morgan and so on and and then I was introduced because I had to be standing there anyway and I shook his hand and I said me hi and he said me hi back to me and I thought blow for freedom and I also noticed that the the, the junior members of his group when they heard this were sort of doing the Chinese equivalent of hiding giggles <laughs> and I thought it's odd and I also noticed that the the second secretary commercial his complexion turned as white as his well-starched collar and he gave me a look so off they went and a couple of hours later we were in the tea room you see having a bit of a break and a tea and a biscuit and so on and so forth and this chap from the embassy was there he came in and he said for Christ's sake he said what's he saying me Highland I said well it's, it's Mandarin for he said no he said that's me home and I said, well, what's Nihai? He said, two spoonfuls. <laughs> so I, I had said to this, this chap in all innocence, two spoonfuls. 
spoonfuls. And of course, the thing was, he was clearly taking the mickey out of me because he sent two spoonfuls back to me. You know, so never let it be said that the Chinese don't have a sense of humour. <laughs> and I don't know if it's significant, Bill, but CAC never bought Concord. Mm, strange, though. <laughs> So I thought that was that was really against myself, and I then learnt the lesson. Well, I think so that you know, unless you really, it, it sounds polite to try and say a few words in somebody's language, but so often, if you do, I found anyway, if you do, they can sometimes assume that you're actually fairly fluent, go off in that <laughs> language, and if they go, and then you're completely lost. Use Joe Berg, as many other people did, for hot and high trials. Uh, and we we took one of the Concords there. Oh, I know it was 002 actually. It was the old the one that's at Yeovilton, the first British um, assembled prototype. And it it only had it was pretty basic inside. It only had about twenty four seats. It was in the days when flight test equipment was as big as a double wardrobe instead of being slightly smaller than that laptop. <laughs> you know the scene. And uh, I mean no hat racks or. Uh, linings in the future, anything like what a, a prototype airplane test aircraft and we had to take it down to cape town um for these sort of diplomatic flights because you know i mean concord as we all know was a a political football really wasn't it between france and england and and, and, and we had to do what the government wanted to do and all that sort of stuff and um the uh, the Parliament was sitting in Cape Town, as you probably know, the South African Parliament six months in Cape Town and six months in Pretoria because of the weather, the heat and stuff. They really happened to be in Cape Town, so we did some flights. And the tour manager was this incredible chap. You may have heard of him, Air Marshal Sir Geoffrey Tuttle. He's also since deceased, and he was the vice chairman of the Commercial Aircraft Division at Weybridge. And we were in Cape Town for probably about a week and we had this South African white South African sort of seven foot four policeman guarding the aeroplane funny enough throughout the Concorde program we never ever had any security problems isn't that strange now today the situation would be completely different anyway sign of the times I mean, people loathed it and hated it, and the anti-Concord League and Richard Wiggs and so on, but there was never any, if you like, physical nastiness. Mm. Anyway, so he said, Mike, hey, Jeffrey Tuttle, I said, yes, Jeffrey. He said, uh, policeman Jeffrey, if you, he said, done a good job. He said, we've got, we've got some spare seats on the flight. Get him on board, get him on board. So I said, right, okay. So I went up to him. And you could tell that this chap was was really frightened fartless of flying in anything let alone right. this noisy smoky yeah. monster <laughs> so i got him on board his revolves around his belt and all the rest of it you see and i sat him down and, and you see he was really rather nervous so i sat next to him and off we fired it was daryl the late lamented brian trubshaw oh, and right. the equally late lamented john cochran right. we fired off table mountain went over the sea and we used to trot along a bit in that airplane about 2.2 at times so we were thundering along, you see, and over the sea, and I said to this chap, um, you know, we're, we're travelling at about 1,450 miles an hour now, and uh, he looked at me, and I said that, just to put his mind at rest, I said, well, that's, um, 
that's probably about 200 miles an hour faster than a bullet from your revolver. <laughs> Which I think is roughly approximately right anyway. And he looked at me, he said, really, mate, man? He said, you mean if I pull the trigger, nothing happens? <laughs> <laughs> this is absolutely true. The point went into service in uh, 21st of January 1976. Um, we had a, three months of what they called the Endurance Flying Program. And Air France did it as well, with, B, with BA. Uh, and it was flown as if it were in service, keeping to the schedules with a complete passenger load to where it was supposed to be going in those days, those heady days. So the French one would go to Rio and, and, and we would, we would, well, we, we couldn't, we, we weren't actually, uh, to begin with, we could, we weren't allowed to do any test flights into New York, if you remember, because of the, the um, objectors. So what we used to do, in fact, was to fly to Gander, which I think by Great Circle is probably about the same distance, give or take a couple hundred miles. And the um, the uh, passengers, the invited passengers, uh, were, uh, well, to begin with, of course, it had to be the union people from Filton and the factories and the, and the workers, quite rightly, and all the rest of it, and and then MPs and all that sort of stuff. And and then uh, the boss of the then Roman Catholic Church was brought along and he came along. And then I think it was Archbishop Ramsey in those days oh, yeah. came along. And uh, uh, he was sitting up the front and oily, greasy little savage sat next to him and halfway through and he was knocking back copious quantities of Camparian soda, I recall, <laughs> and why not? And uh, and, and I, I said, you know, um, how are you enjoying your fl the, the flight, Your Grace? And he looked at me in rather sort of bleary light and looked at my badge. He said, oh, he said, very well, Mr. Savage. He said, in fact, I've never been quite this close to head office before. <laughs> I thought that was sweet. <laughs> Absolutely sweet. But there, were, there was, it was, it was great fun actually. The the the, the endurance flying program. We we used to fly to to Melbourne. It was in the days when it was allegedly going to Sydney, and then the people at Mascot complained and it couldn't go to Sydney. So we used to fly to the new, then fairly newly opened Tullamarine Airport at Melbourne, which again is about the same distance, and it was Melbourne, Singapore, forty five minutes. Bahrain, 45 minutes home, and people just say, oh, God, you have to stop, you know, two, twice, because it's a fairly short range airplane compared to, to what we have now. But on the other hand, you know, people seem to forget that airplanes stop not only because they haven't got the range, but because people want to get on and get off. Mm. But, um, and the, I remember the, the, the quickest we actually ever did it, fly, not elapsed, but flying time, from Tullamarine to Heathrow with, I think, nearly 20 minutes holding because of fog was about 10 hours, 20 minutes. Right. Not, not bad to, <laughs> from, from Australia, is it really? And I, I lived in, um, during that program, when we used Gander as, towards the, the, the New York approval, I lived in, uh, 
Sussex Place, just behind the Lancaster Hotel in those days, Radnor Mews. And I used to get up at, or leave the house at nine, get to the old Terminal 3. We would push back at 10, because it only had 100 passengers. Mm. Well, my goodness, you hard push to find a, a regional airliner with less than about 150 these yeah. days. So it was, you know, loading and, 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 and departure was... And we'd fly to Gander, and I'd made arrangements with the duty port, which, of course, was a dead airport then, because it wasn't used by these transatlantic mm. flights. The Britannias were grounded. Well, not grounded, but they'd gone. And our craft didn't need so they were very pleased to see us. And I arranged for the customs there that we would pick up 100 passengers. We had a, we, of course, we had a, a flight engineer in those days, so we had a crew of one, Six, so 106. We take on board 106 litres of Canadian Club whiskey and 106 kilos of um, Canadian smoked salmon <laughs> for, for the trip so back. A, a kilo each. And fly, and fly back. And on one of these trips, Trubby came up to me. He said, Look, I think we better stop doing this. He said, uh, He said, The range is a bit marginal. Uh, and he said, uh, he said, thank goodness we're, you know, we're, we're coming. Well, you see, the thing was that it wasn't a question of coming back with the wind because we used to cruise in those days at over 60,000 feet on these trips because there's no wind up there. So he was a bit worried about, you know, weight because mm. it was a bit, a bit pushed for, 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 for range to begin with. But then it was it, it obviously get, got better as people knew 